right now. We're going to be in Psalm 114 this morning. And um, I don't think I'm sharing anything new, at least I hope I'm not. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I find that I repeat myself a lot because one of two things um, are oftentimes true for me, the reason why I have to repeat myself. Other, one is because I haven't been heard, right? Someone didn't hear me. Or number two is I didn't say it very clearly. And oftentimes it's the latter and not the former. So if you ever hear me say, which I think you have, do you understand? That, there's a reason why, all right? It's a little PTSD for me because I've, I've been oftentimes not clear in what I've been sharing or I've not been heard, all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, I say that to say this, is that as we've been journeying through this book of Psalms, um, it has been hopefully a, a wonderful journey for us to see the ups and downs of a relationship with God and specifically with Jesus Christ. And I found, I came across a quote in a book called Hurting with God. And the author of that book, I, as he's reflecting on not only the Psalms, but on Job, talk about a book of the ups and downs of a relationship with God. Read Job sometime. Job is a magnificent story, a magnificent book about a relationship with God and the perspective of thinking, particularly Job's friends, who think they have it figured out as to why Job was going through what he was going through, right? It was not as though that their theology was bad. You done messed up, Job. You need to repent. And Job was like, I have it messed up. I did not do anything wrong and all of this happened to me. Yes, you did. God does not do needless suffering. He is not someone up there just looking at someone and saying, I think I'm going to make that person's life miserable today. That is not who God is, as Job's friends rightly believed. And yet they still believed that Job did something wrong and that Job was being arrogant and self-centered and all of those things and all he, that he needed to do was simply repent and Job said, I've done nothing wrong at all. Job's friends had really good theology. It was just really poorly applied. Whenever we think that we have God figured out, one of two things oftentimes happens. Either we resist whenever God shows up in a way that we didn't expect him to show up and say, oh no, that's not God's work because it doesn't fit in our box. Or we say, wow, God, I did not think of you that way. And we change. The interesting thing about theology is the interesting thing about relationships. It ebbs and flows a little bit. There is the absolutely, without a doubt, the, the rock foundational beliefs of theology that never change. And if you want to know what those beliefs are, I encourage you to look at the Apostles' Creed. We don't say it very much here at Summit Ridge because we are a non-creedal church. <laughs> That's not true. We have a statement of faith. It's a creed, okay? It's a creed. Nothing wrong with creeds. I love creeds. But outside of that rock foundation of truth of the, of the Apostles' Creed, which is where I tend to go to, if people want to ask, Dan, what is it that you hold, hold to and that everything else is kind of um, up for grabs, so to speak? Um, it's the Apostles' Creed. It's the, it's the Apostles' Creed. So if people come to me and they want to talk about theology, about women in ministry, for instance, or about some sort of social, whatever it is, uh, whatever it is, you know, for instance, women in ministry, we, we at Summit Ridge, as part of our denomination, we, we champion and we, we love 
and we um, encourage the ordination of women, that women have a role and a calling on their lives to also be pastors as much as men do. And there are disagreements in evangelicalism about that. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. We can disagree and still be all about Jesus Christ. Right? Hey, you want me to blow your mind today? Get this. We can be for the ordination of women and still be conservative. <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. I mean, we can still be conservative. We can be all about the absolute stewardship of God's creation. And we can be champion environmentalists, in which I think there's a good case for that to be made as Christians. And still be all about the gospel of Jesus. In fact, it's not one or the other. It's both and. It's both and. Brothers and sisters, let me just say this. My hope as we go through the book of Psalms and as we have been going through the book of Psalms is that do not be so quick to settle on your theology in such a way that when God shows up to show him something more of himself to you, that you do not miss it or dismiss it, but rather embrace it. Right? I cannot tell you how many times I thought I had it figured out. Only to be shown I don't. Job's friends didn't have it figured out. And at the end, in a bit of irony, where they thought they were righteous, it was Job who had to pray for them so that God wouldn't smite them. Now that's irony. Right? Anyways, I say that to say this. This author is reflecting on these books. Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, known as wisdom books. And he says this, we live in a world, this should not be by way, any way surprising, in a world that is beyond our control. If you didn't know that, you're going to find out real quick. The biggest illusion in our lives, I believe, is this. We are not in control. The illusion that we are is just that, an illusion. We are not in control, brothers and sisters. We are not in we are not in control of our own families. We are not, in, I have a dog. I can't control that dog all the time. <laughs> Truly. I have a dog. I keep saying it like a mantra. The dog ruined my, my comforter. We have a big hole in, well, it's an old comforter, right? It's amazing when the kids move out how much more money you seem to have. I think I shared that, but I threw the comforter away the other day. Lori's out of town, so I go to town. So I, I threw the comforter away and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, you ruined my comforter, dog. And I look at the bright side. He could have ruined something more of value, and he didn't. But nonetheless, I can't control him all that. He's an anxious dog, so he fits right into our family. <laughs> He's a truly anxious dog. I mean, the dog, I'm an anxious guy too. So we just play off each other, off our anxiousness. The dog can't sit still for a second, right? He is just an anxious dog. I can't control this thing all the time. We are not in control. Remember that. We are not in control. He goes on and says this, and life is in a constant flux of change. You think? There's the one constant in life. It's what? Change. So we have a decision to make, he writes. Keep trying to control a storm that is not going to go away, 
or start learning how to live within the rain. What I love about the book of Psalms, as well as these books of Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, by the way, there is just FYI, just a little bit of uh, useless knowledge for you. There are many theologians who believe that the first book, the oldest book of the Bible that was written is not Genesis, but probably Job. For good reason. It's debatable, but there's good reason. I, I think it's probably true, but it's debatable nonetheless. What I love about the book of Psalms is that it acknowledges the storms of life. It acknowledges the heartache. It acknowledges the pain. It acknowledges the joys. It acknowledges the wonderful things about life. It acknowledges the ups and downs in our relationship with God. And instead of saying in a totally different way, well, you know what? Um, we're just going to ignore these storms. We're just going to ignore that bad stuff and only talk about the good stuff. No, the, the, the book of Psalms presses in to those storms. And in, in doing so, I think, gives us a way for us not to avoid the rain, but rather to live and maybe even dance within it. That's what I love about the book of Psalms. Today, the psalm we're going to look at, I think, is just that way. Psalm 114. And as we look at this psalm this morning, we're going to be taking a look at a concept, a very important theological concept that you've probably heard, and if you have not, you're going to hear it today, and you ought to know this word, because this theological concept is absolutely essential to the Christian faith, faith rather, not faith. And that is this, the concept, or the word, is redemption, or redeemed. How many of you have heard of this word, redemption, or redeemed, right? I hope so. It is absolutely essential, I believe, outside of Jesus Christ, which Jesus Christ is the most essential, without a doubt. The most essential aspect of the gospel isn't us. The most essential aspect of the gospel isn't redemption, necessarily. The most essential aspect of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Remember what the gospel is. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. W-O-N. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. And redemption is an incredibly important aspect of the gospel message. Redemption is the idea or concept of being freed, rescued, and most importantly, bought with a price. Bought with a price. This is something that as Christians we ought to know and realize is that we are free, that we have been rescued, and most importantly, every single one of us has been bought with a price. It did not come easily or cheaply, our freedom. As one author writes about redemption, he says this, Redemption is not just a nice word to use in church, okay? It has the power to restore us back to the status we had with God before the fall. Redemption gives believers the same legal status that Jesus had with the Father while he was walking on the earth. Th think about that. Redemption is so important that the, the fact that we have it gives us standing before the Father, not simply as a disciple, not simply as a slave even, but more importantly, as a child, his child. We are no longer just simply people before God. We are his children. Do, do you understand, church, that when Jesus looks at us, and more importantly, when the Father looks at you and I, he does not see sinners the way that you and I see sinners. He sees instead, because of what Jesus has done, 
He sees his son in each and every one of us. And he loves us. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So this morning, as we look at Psalm 114, we're going to look at this concept of redemption, but specifically, what does redemption look like? What does it involve? Why is it so important? What is it that, that makes up redemption? What makes redemption possible? What does it look like for us to be redeemed? And I got it down to three C's for you, because that's the way I roll. And I'm going to give you the three C's right now, and then we're going to break them apart, okay? The three C's are this, and just keep these in mind. The three C's of redemption are this, and it's not the only three C's. It's not the only elements of redemption. It is a part of it, okay, based on Psalm 114. The three C's, at least in Psalm 114 of redemption, are these. Cover, crossing, completion. Cover, crossing, completion. So this morning, we're going to break up each one of these three C's and dive in a little bit more as to what each one means when we talk about this concept and this theological reality and truth of redemption. Are you ready? Did I lose you already? It's okay if I did. Do you understand? Good. There you go. Let's dive in. Psalm 114. Here it is. The author is most likely possibly King David, although that's not for sure. The purpose of this psalm, as we're going to see in just a few minutes here, is to remind Israel of her history and how God worked in the midst of of Israel. In return, they are called to praise God and to come into his presence. Okay? Because they are redeemed, rescued people. So the first part of redemption, cover. Let's dive in. Psalm 114, verses 1 through 2. Here's what I mean when I say cover is a part of redemption. When Israel left Egypt, when the family of Jacob left a foreign nation behind, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his kingdom. Here's what is so awesome about this, is that the author of Psalms is reminding the people of Israel when they were being brought out of Egypt, and when they left a foreign nation behind, or a nation in which they, were, they spoke a foreign language. And not only did God bring them out of Egypt, not only did God go there and get them out and rescue them, but more importantly, as verse 2 shares here, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his kingdom. In other words, he didn't just rescue them and say, good luck, have fun, see you around, let's do this again sometime. Not. No, no, he didn't do that. Rather, he said, not only am I going to rescue you, I am going to be with you from here on out. Forever and ever and ever. I am actually going to dwell with you. In other words, I am going to be your sanctuary and you're going to be my sanctuary. I, I'm going to put my kingdom in you. You are going to be my kingdom. You are going to be my people. I am going to be your God. In other words, God didn't just rescue and leave them alone. God rescued and said, now I'm going to stay. I'm going to cover you. I'm going to be a, a sanctuary for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. This, this is a reality, not only for the people of Israel, but it is also still a reality for every single one of us who come to know Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. It says this, So then, you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens in a foreign land, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. 
in him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Think about this. Israel's story is also our story. Israel's story is also our story. Let me, let me give you an example, another one, right? You ever wonder why? Maybe you haven't. Maybe it's just me. It's okay. This is what I do for a living, so that's why it interests me. Um, in the Gospels, it's particularly in Matthew, um, where Jesus um, is, is a baby, and, they, and, and, and Joseph and Mary and Jesus have to flee to Egypt, right? Because, because Herod is jealous, and he wants to kill, or at least get to Jesus to kill him, right? And realizing that Jesus has escaped with his parents to Egypt, that all of a sudden now Herod now goes, and just to make sure, covering his bases, crossing all his I's and dotting all his T's, um, that he goes ahead and orders the killing of all these infant boys, right, in the scriptures. But then Jesus and, and Mary and Joseph come back out of Egypt, come back and, and settle into Nazareth, northern part of Israel there. And then all of a sudden now Jesus goes around when he gets his ministry going, he picks 12 disciples, all that kind of stuff. Do you ever wonder why those events happen that way? Because Jesus is repeating the story of Israel that now becomes our story. Where Israel was brought out of Egypt, so was Jesus. Where Israel had 12 tribes, Jesus has 12 disciples. Do you see the connection? Israel's story is also our story. An exodus, a rescuing, a redemption. And that is just phenomenal. Ephesians takes that up and says, yeah, by the way, all of us, who are followers of Jesus Christ, we too have been brought out of a foreign land. Guess what our foreign land is? Guess what our foreign nation is? This world. This is foreign to us. If you've ever asked yourself, man, why, why is the I don't understand. I, I don't understand why the world is operating. I don't understand why people do this to each other. I don't understand why people say this to each other. I don't understand why all of this, I, it, I, I just don't seem to belong here. You're right. You and I don't belong here. We will eventually, but we are foreigners who have been brought out and made citizens of God's kingdom. We operate by a different set of values. We operate by a different set of, 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 of behaviors, everything else that defines us as people who are different than the world around us. And what I love about Christians is how we display our difference is among the world, and they scratch their heads going, what? Who, who are you? What, why, would you, why, would you do, why would you do that? All that kind of stuff. When you think about what Christians have done, even, even someone like Randall going off to Samaritan's Purse and spending four or five days just doing disaster relief for no other reason because Jesus tells us to do something like that occasionally, and for no other reason but because he just loves people because Jesus loves people. When, when, when people go off and they start and they see a need, when Christians see a need and they say, gosh, there's all these kids running around. We need to start an orphanage to care for these kids. When they see all these sick people, one of the earliest examples of Christians was when Rome 
was under siege in terms of a deadly illness. And most of Rome fled, got out of the city. It was, it was the coronavirus on steroids. These, th th this virus was killing people. It was an incredibly terrible disease that was descending on Rome. The people who stayed behind to care for the sick were the Christians. Even at a risk of themselves getting sick, they stayed. The rest of the world goes, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Yep, I'm crazy. I'm absolutely crazy. It's just amazing. Why do we do these things, church? Because we're not of this world. We're in the world, but we're not of this world. We're citizens in the kingdom of heaven. God has rescued us, redeemed us, like he redeemed and rescued Israel out of Egypt. We have been redeemed and rescued out of this world, and now we're citizens in heaven. And on top of that, as God said to Israel, not only will I rescue, I'm going to be your sanctuary, your kingdom, and my kingdom is going to rest with you. He says this to us as well. It's interesting. Fear not in the Bible. Do you know how many times that is listed? Fear not. 365 times. Fear not. Now there's an end part to that phrase too, right? Does anybody know what the end part is? Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you. He's providing cover. Don't, it, that doesn't mean we're not going to die. That doesn't mean we're not going to face all sorts of terrible, awful horrible things because the world looks at us and say, yeah, you're weird. You're foreigners. We don't like fuzzy foreigners. Get out of here kind of thing. And, and, and it doesn't mean that. But what that means is God says, guess what? Don't, don't worry about all that stuff. Fear me. Don't fear them. And by the way, I am with you always. Jesus said it himself with the great commission. As he ascended into heaven and he gave his disciples this great commission to go into the world and baptize and teach and do all these things. And he ends with this. And lo, I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. I even went King James on that. <laughs> lo, I am with you always. Lo, L-O, not L-O-W. Okay? I mean, that, that's a beautiful thing. God doesn't leave us alone. Hear me. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are never ever alone ever alone and this is shown throughout scripture all the time moses leading the israelites oh moses had it up to here at times and god said it's gonna be okay i'm with you you got this yeah but you remember the story when he was first called right moses threw everything he could at god to say god i'm not qualified that's all right i still i'm still going to use you god i'm not a good speaker there comes your brother use him God, you don't understand. When I go to the Israelites and they ask who sent me, what am I supposed to say? Tell them my name. I am. All of that stuff. Oh, and by the way, what's that in your, what's that in your hand, Moses? A staff. Yeah, you're, I'm going with you. I am going. Ezekiel. Woo. Talk about a phenomenal book, but a very graphic book. Um, you ever want to find out what, what God's car looks like? Read Ezekiel. Seriously, he describes his ride, and it is a really sweet ride. It's a really sweet ride. 
these visions that Ezekiel has. And what is so amazing, Ezekiel is having these visions as he's in exile in Babylon, along with the first wave of Israelites. They're in, they're in exile there. And he's on this river, and he would have been a priest coming up on his 30th birthday, but because he's in exile, he now no longer can become a priest, but nonetheless, he's a prophet, and he's getting these visions. And one of the visions he has is God's ride, is that he sees God, and God is with him in Babylon. And the first thing Ezekiel says is, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in Jerusalem, in the temple. That's where you dwell. And God said, Pfft. he didn't say that, but that's my added commentary to it. He said to Ezekiel, I'm with you, even in exile. I put you in exile, and I didn't just say, bye-bye, see you in 70 years. I'm going with you in exile. And that blew Ezekiel's mind. He couldn't, he couldn't believe it. No matter what, church, God is with you and I. He is providing cover. We are not alone. We are in his sanctuary always. And that is an incredibly important part of redemption. Okay, here's the second one. And there's a reason why this is important, to have this covering. And this leads us to our second one, crossing. Psalm 114, verses 3 through 4, it says this. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan River turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What in the world? Let me just say this. What the author of this psalm is reciting is the fact that when the Israelites went and out of Egypt, the Red Sea parted. That's the first parting right there. And when they came into the Promised Land, the Jordan River parted as they entered into the Promised Land. And, and all of a sudden now, here's the reality, is that every redemption requires a crossing. Every redemption requires a crossing. And that crossing often is this, from death to life, from bondage to freedom. Every redemption story requires some sort of crossing. We've got to leave something to go somewhere else. Requires a crossing. The same it is here, is that this required a crossing. And do you know what is so amazing about this? Is that when we are in a crossing, in a redemption crossing, heaven and earth move. Creation bends. You don't believe me? Creation bended for us as well. Listen to these words out of Matthew when Jesus was on the cross. Matthew 27, 45 and through 46, it says this. Now from noon until three, darkness came over all the land. And at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And just then, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, and the rocks were split apart, and tombs were opened, and the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Talk about a freak-out show. Redemption requires a crossing, and oftentimes nature bends to God's will. In other words, think about it this way. God will move heaven and earth to save us. God will move heaven and earth to save you. God will move heaven and earth to save me. That's powerful. Do you realize 
that your redemption story involved the moving of heaven and earth? Do you realize that every single person who comes to know Jesus Christ, do you know what happens in the heavens? Scripture tells us there is incredible rejoicing. The angels are rejoicing. God is rejoicing. Our lost son, our lost daughter has come home. And he moved heaven and earth to make it possible. That's beautiful. Every redemption story requires a crossing. But you know what is so difficult about the crossing at times? We don't want to always do it. It's exciting at first. Woo! God parted the Red Sea. You imagine the Israelites going, this is amazing. Now they were scared, granted, right? I'd still be as well. Seriously? They got to cross this? I mean, I'll be honest, a few weeks, I think I shared this before, I, brought, I bought Cecil D. DeMille's The Ten Commandments recently. That's a fantastic movie. When you learn how they did the effects of the Red Sea there, parting the Red Sea, it's so minimal, but it looks so cool even for a 1950s movie. I mean, that's awesome, right? I mean, that's just fantastic, but still incredibly scary. Here's the thing about making a crossing. Oftentimes when we're in the midst of making that crossing, it gets scary, it gets uncertain, it gets painful, it gets hard, it gets unfamiliar, and it's in those moments that oftentimes we want to turn back and say, yeah, back there was safer. I might have been in bondage, but at least I was happier. I, 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 might, have been, I might have been a slave, I might have been dying, but at least it was familiar to me. I'd rather go back there. The problem with a crossing, church, is it's hard. It isn't always easy. In many ways, like the Israelites, want to go back to Egypt. Want to go back to Egypt. Every redemption story requires a crossing. Here is the sad reality, though, is some may not always make it. The story of the exodus of the Israelites is the fact is when they finally got to the promised land, they all doubted, except for just a couple. And God said, go wander more. Why? So that this generation can die off. They will not see it. What is so hard is that it is, not everyone completes this crossing. Not everyone wants to do it. Not everyone wants to see it through and wants to turn back. And that's really, really, really hard and heartbreaking to see. Which leads me to my third and final aspect of redemption. It's that it's completion. Psalm 114, verses 5 through 8 says this, Why do you flee, O sea? Why do you turn back, O Jordan River? Why do you skip like rams, O mountains, like lambs, O hills? Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned a rock into a pool of water, a hard rock into springs of water. Again, reciting the Exodus story, what the author here is reminding the people of Israel is that when God showed up and brought him, them out of Egypt, he moved heaven and earth to do so. But now once they were in the crossing, once they were in the midst of going from Egypt to the promised land, from bondage to freedom, from death to life, God was providing for them all of the way, reciting the times 
when water came out of rocks in the middle of deserts. When they were thirsty and God gave them something to drink. When they were hungry and God provided for them heavenly bread. Whose name simply is, what is it? What is it? That's manna. Manna literally means, what is it? It could describe it. Just means, no, literally, I'm I'm not lying to you. I'm not. (laughs) No, it literally means, what is it? That's all it means. What is it? It's manna. What is it? That's what it is. But he provided for them. He provided for them. Talk about calling it what it is. What is it? It is. It is what it is. God provided it. And here's the other thing he does for us. Is that he will see the work he began to full completion. If we allow him to. If we allow him to. A.W. Tozer said this. He said the greatest encouragement throughout the Bible is God's love for his lost race and the willingness of Christ, the eternal son, to show forth that love in God's plan of redemption. The love of Jesus is so inclusive that it knows no boundaries. I want you to understand this, church. God loves everyone. God judges because he loves God has mercy because he loves. God shows grace because he loves. He loves every single person. It knows no boundaries. At at the point where we stop caring and loving, Jesus is still there loving and caring. What is so amazing is when Jesus, when we are tempted to give up, Jesus doesn't. When we are tempted to say, God, this is just too hard right now, Jesus says, Keep going. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on you. I love you. I will care for you. I will provide for you. And I believe Jesus does. I believe Jesus does. Philippians 1, 6 says this, For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Every single one of us who are followers of Jesus here this morning, whether we realize it or not, have a story of redemption. Every single one of us has a story in which God covers us, in which God is with us when we are making this crossing from death to life, from slavery to freedom. Every one of us can look forward to the time when we will be in full fellowship with him the work that he began, we will see it to full completion if we stick with him because he never gives up on us. You know what's so amazing about the story of Israel, and this is recited throughout scripture over and over again. The story of Israel could be summed up in two big things, exodus and exile. Exodus and exile. They came out, they went back in. They would come out again. But for us as followers of Jesus, I want to add a third dimension to that. We have exodus. We may even at times have exile. 
But we have a third one, and that is expectation. We have a Savior, Jesus, who has come. We can expect him to do what exactly he said he would do, to finish the work that he began in us. Every single one of us who knows Jesus has a redemption story, and it's a beautiful story. So my encouragement to you this morning is this. Remember your story. Remember your story. The wonderful thing about Scripture is it reminds the people of Israel what God has done in their midst, what God has done over and over and over again as they were drawn out of Egypt, as they came into the Promised Land, all of these wonderful things. One person said it this way, Seeking to forget makes exile all the longer. The secret of redemption lies in remembrance. Remember your story. You might be here today and you might think, I don't have much of a story, Pastor. I, uh, you know, I just grew up in a wonderful household. I just grew up in a wonderful, loving family. And if that's so, God bless you. That's wonderful. May that be the same with your children and your children's children. And by the way, don't ever think because you never had it hard in the midst of accepting Jesus that your redemption story is any less important than someone who came from a very, very tough situation and found Jesus in the midst there. Your story is just as important. It's your story. It's your story of how God rescued you, bought you with a price. The angel sang just as loudly for you as it did for someone who came to know Jesus in the midst of an incredibly difficult situation. Don't ever cheapen your story, ever. Remember it. Remember it. Because it's a beautiful story. It's a story of redemption. So this morning, you might be in the middle of a crossing. Maybe you're just starting it. Maybe you're in the middle of it. The only time you're at the end of it, I'm sorry, folks, is when you're on your way out. And I hope that's none of you. Okay? So now you're going to go there. I'm going to keep that off to the side. And it may be hard. You're struggling. Man, I want to go back. I enjoyed that life. I enjoyed that time. I want to go back. And you're, you're really struggling. I wanted to say, don't. God has you covered. And here's how I think in many ways he has us covered. He's provided a church. He's provided fellow Christians, the great cloud of witnesses. He has given us all these things for us to continue on this journey. The worst thing you and I can do when we are finding it very hard in this crossing from death into life is to withdraw and keep it to ourselves instead of opening it up to others and saying, man, I am really, really struggling. You'd be surprised the amount of people that would say, I've been there. I know what you're talking about. As a pastor, I have to work on that as well. <laughs> Pastors are prideful people oftentimes. We only want to talk about the good. Oh, you should hear my church. Woo! Man! We've got people who are baptizing them. We're growing like gangbusters. We've got some awesome stuff going on. It seems like nothing happens bad to them until you drill down a little deeper. You get them into a room. I'm struggling in my crossing. 
most encouraging, encouraging thing you can hear is, I've been there. I'm there now. Let's go together. Let's go together. If that's you this morning, don't leave here without talking to someone. Pastor, person next to you. If you don't know the person next to you, introduce yourselves. We're all brothers and sisters here. But let's keep going. And let's one day rejoice together in the completed work that Jesus Christ began in us. Amen. Jesus, I am grateful for redemption. I am grateful, Jesus, that you have begun this phenomenal work in each and every single one of us who call you Lord and Savior. And Father, for anyone here who may not know you yet, I pray that today may be the day that they would come to know you, that they would want to come out of the darkness into the light, they would want to come out of death and into life, that they would want to come out of bondage into freedom, Jesus. And that we could all share together in the redemption story that we were bought with a price. That you have us covered in our crossing and that you will see us to completion. Thank you for this story in our lives, Jesus. Thank you for redemption. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.